welcome back to Dreams of the Past podcast. Um, we left off part one talking about some themes of supernatural and we're really excited to dive into part two with you if you guys haven't heard part one of this episode we recommend you go back and listen to part one before you dive into this one just because the conversation really picks up where we left off in the last episode we'll leave a link to that episode in the description and we'll also have a link to our full episode list in case you want to go back and start from the very beginning which is not necessary, but we do recommend just because we start with the context of Supernatural in episode one. In later episodes, we'll be doing episodes by themes, so you can feel free to just pick whichever episodes you're interested in, but we do really recommend you listen to that first episode. All right, so welcome back, and let's dive into it. Where we left off, I was talking about the comparison between where Bella sees them as monsters. So Bella really sees them as, she says this in the episode, Red Sky at Morning, that she calls them sociopaths. And that really ties into the concept that the Winchesters have to become monsters in order to hunt monsters. And that they have a hand in their own demise in a really interesting way where, again, I've said this before, but they are the agents of the apocalypse. And it's not that the apocalypse happens to them it's that they are active participants in the apocalypse and they make decisions that result in the apocalypse happening and it's very very clear from context that they could have made different choices like dean doesn't have to torture in hell his father resisted it Sam doesn't have to drink demon blood in uh, the ending of season four. Ruby even tells him, I didn't make you do anything. You, I just gave you the choices and you chose the right path every single time. And so the rejection of destiny really is a very interesting thing in, the sh- in Supernatural because they clearly are given agency, but are, there's also the the weight of them being descendants of Cain and Abel and the fact that their lives fit so perfectly into the story of Michael and Lucifer. So there's this sense of predestination, even though the show really emphasizes the fact that the choices they make really affect what happens. It's this really interesting form of fate and destiny that I sort of recognize from conversations we had in my humanities class in college, actually, Uh, So the professor who taught my humanities class was a philosophy professor. So philosophy was obviously something we talked about a lot in that course. And something that I found really interesting was this idea of having choice, but having your choice constricted by the past and by fate in a way that means there's really only ever one choice that you're going to make. Um, So the person that you are and the person that your past has shaped you into and your family history has shaped you into and your DNA or whatever um, all converges um, and all the outside pressures around you also converge. Um, So even though you are a free agent and you're making your own choice, at the same time, your choice is constricted in a way that means that there's only one path for you to take. Um, And it's incredibly difficult or even impossible to step off of that path. I don't think Supernatural ultimately agrees with that viewpoint, 
but I think that no, I, I think it very yeah. clearly doesn't agree with the viewpoint that there's a predestination because in the end, the Winchesters do stop the apocalypse from happening, and it, they do it despite the fact that literally everything at, mm-hmm. in existence tells them that they can't. Right, right. But that seems to be the path that both heaven and hell are promoting, right? They're saying that no matter what happens, it will always end up like this. Like thinking about the episode where Castiel sends Dean back in time to save his mom as a way of showing him that he can't save his mom, right? In a way, like there are two conflicting philosophies at work here um, that I think really speak to America's Protestant roots in terms of our culture, which is something that we'll delve into in a later episode. Yeah, we're going to do a whole, I think we're going to do two episodes on religion just because it's such a large topic. The show really draws very, very heavily on a religious tradition of the United States. Although um, somebody pointed out to me recently that there are no Mormons in the show. And I looked this up and as far as Supernatural Wiki is concerned, never mm-hmm. mentions Mormons at all, which I think is, a, is an interesting creative choice. It is an interesting creative choice. But I think growing up in Wyoming, near Salt Lake City, we're sort of in the heart of Mormon country. But when I went away to college, uh, I sort of discovered, I mean, I always knew, but it sort of whacked me in the face with this two by four of Mormons aren't really that common outside of this region of the U.S. So it could like it could be an oversight, but it could also just be legitimately they didn't think about it. Uh, Even in the Pacific Northwest, we are pretty close to Utah, but I think it is definitely an interesting choice, even if it's not necessarily something that the creators were like ultimately very familiar with. But considering that Mormonism is such an American religion and it's exclusively an American religion and it has its own mythos and like cultural context that's so... It's so American. It's it's interesting to see its absence from a show like this, which is a, such a fundamentally American show and a, a show about American myths and mythos. And especially because um, the supernatural draws so heavily on Judeo-Christian myths, as well as the imagery of Catholicism, which I know you have a lot of thoughts about. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes the trap, it trappings and imagery of Catholicism very, very seriously, but never really mentions Mormonism, so... I don't know. Maybe they're tra- they're maybe they're also worried that they couldn't treat Mormonism with respect, but that's not really something that the show seems concerned with in a lot of other regions. <laughs> like it definitely it takes pretty liberally from like Native American mythology without providing much context, and Irish mythology with the um in which they re- mispronounce the name consistently. So I don't necessarily think it's out of respect. So it is interesting that it's not there given all the points that you made and given that Mormon history and the history of American Western expansion and white settlement of Western states are very closely tied together. And obviously, you know, Samuel Colt, the idea of Wendigos as mountain men or trappers beyond supernatural having a relationship with the Western hero. Supernatural has a very strong relationship with the Western mythos in general. And so I think in that context, the lack of of Mormons and Mormonism 
is also very interesting. It seems like it would fit very naturally into the show. All of that said, I do, again, authorial intent doesn't matter. Do we care? I'm, I'm fairly well convinced it's a genuine oversight and not a deliberate choice. Oh, no. I, yeah, I think Occam's Razor says that it's just an oversight. And we could talk for hours and hours about things that aren't in Supernatural that maybe we should be. Uh, like my rant about taxidermy <laughs> in an earlier episode, which I think I cut, actually. <laughs> I think I cut that out. But um, what I want to do is uh, sort of return to the concept of predestination, and especially in terms of the uh, genres of literature we were talking about earlier, specifically the Western genre and the detective genre, because predestination isn't something that those genres are overly concerned with. Uh, at least not explicitly, despite the fact that they follow such a strong formula for what we would consider, um, like it almost, the predestination is almost a non-issue because it's so obvious in those genres, like the Western, the, the hero of the Western is so aggressively <laughs> or so rigidly predestined to like to come into town and save people and to be this sort of this figure on the edge of society that purges society of evil that we don't really see that that mold ever being broken. And it's interesting to consider the role um, predestiny has in Supernatural and also how that changes the relationship between uh, Supernatural and its interpretation as either a derivative of the Western or the detective genre. In some ways, that fits in really well with the detective genre, right? Like the detective who's existing inside this structure and struggling against it and struggling to make changes to it, I think fits really well with what the Winchesters are doing. Like you said, the Western's formula isn't overly concerned with the question of predestination. In some ways, because the moral drama that Westerns often play out has such set rules you know it's sort of like um the the genre itself is predestination right it's like if you're if you're watching a tv show and somebody's in a coma at, at the hospital there are a few sets of binary options right that person wakes up or they don't there's somebody in the room when they wake up or there isn't and either way somebody's gonna look at it and go oh that's so cliche but it's like well there's there only like, so many options. Right, right. There were, there were two options. When you reduce a situation down to such a fundamental starkness between good and evil or different options, which is something that the Western genre quintessentially does, and the article we read about uh, Westerns really talk about how uh, Westerns really reduce the function of language in a very stark manner. And that's something that is very distinctive to the Western genre almost exclusively. And I think that in a lot of ways, even though uh, Sam and Dean aren't nearly as taciturn uh, as the traditional Western hero, they still do have this sort of limited options where they, they're in a world where their options are reduced to, oh, we can either kill the monster or not. And the moral choices are, in, a, in some ways, very obvious, but uh, do some of the episodes do really muddy those moral choices in a way that the Western genre doesn't, but the detective genre definitely does. 
I do actually, I have a quote that I think kind of speaks to, in which the Western does have some complications though. Um, maybe not in the way we're thinking about it right now, but so to a certain extent, uh, the genre has always displayed a limited capacity, emphasis on capacity, not on its limits, for ambivalence in this area. And there has always been moments when the claims of civilization, the winning of the West, have been juxtaposed to the attendant loss of the American wilderness with its innocence, freedom, and natural piety. Um, so I think where the Western does complicate this these ideas is usually not around the idea of civilization, at least in terms of the, the classic Western of the, the early 50s and before, um, but in terms of its relationship with the concept of wilderness and this idea of, it's actually a very romantic idea of civilization versus wilderness and how the loss of wilderness is in a lot of ways tragic and yet in the western is framed as almost necessary right you've got the sort of greek idea of nature which falls in contrast with the sort of uh the american city on a hill the the concept that americans can create out of a out of the wilderness a civilization that can be morally superior to the natural state of man. And mm -hmm. this is something that uh, in Western society, you see a lot of this contrast with the concept of uh, original purity and the purity of wilderness and the ideal of the pastoral versus the way that civilization takes man and rise, like makes him rise above his nature. Um, and so this is one of the like fundamental conflicts you see in Western civilization and philosophy. Yeah. And I think that sort of fits in really well to the dynamic we were talking about, about American culture and its tensions between our values of social cohesion and supporting the society institu and institutions we've created versus our very fundamental values of independence and anti-authoritarianism um, and how our culture and our heroes reflect a struggle between those two poles. And Supernatural um, pretty clearly fits on one end of that spectrum, but I would argue that Differently from what I would expect, Supernatural does not seem all that interested in the idea of purity of wilderness, right? Uh, there is there is a purity there, but it's it's harsh, it's mean, it's dirty, it's difficult. Right. It's not what you want. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting to see them in Wendigo, which is mm -hmm. uh, really the only one of the few episodes where they're actually truly in wilderness. Most of the time, they. Spend their lives in the the quote unquote wilderness of suburbia and highway systems and that sort of thing, and they very rarely are either in a super urban or a super rural area, as we discussed in our previous episode. Um, and so it's really interesting to see them in Wendigo. They are very clearly as portrayed as uh, unfit for really dealing with. Uh, the backcountry wilderness, and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about <laughs> them wearing jeans and biker boots into like 
back country. <laughs> and I'm really excited to hear your rant about that. <laughs> but, oh my God. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that the Wendigo really sets it up such that uh, it's clear that the the characters that know about the backcountry wilderness do not think that Dean and Sam are prepared for what they'll find. But the, the ironic twist, of course, is that Dean and Sam are actually the ones who are more prepared for the wilderness because they know about the supernatural. And although the characters criticize their choice of gear, it's never actually seen like portrayed as a disadvantage to them. Yeah. Okay. So I, I do have some thoughts about this. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> First of all, the people who are quote unquote prepared for the backcountry are idiots. Number one, <laughs> I am so excited for this rant. I was watching Wendigo and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get a Mart rant about wilderness preparedness. And I'm so excited. Also for context, Mart knows a lot about wilderness preparedness. Her dad is literally an expert in this and she's done a lot of backcountry stuff. So like she, she knows her shit. Okay. So first of all, those idiot kids at the start who are on a backcountry camping trip and have video games, but not bear spray. (laughs) And second, moving past the bear spray, which will bother me forever. Everyone who is supposedly some sort of expert, the game and fish person, might have been forest service, whatever. They said they were rangers, so... Yeah, I mean, they, like, talked to some guy at the beginning. I think he's Forest Service, actually, not Game and Fish. I don't know why they didn't talk to anyone from Game and... Whatever. For Game and Fish would have made more sense than Forest Service, is all I'm saying. The guy played by Callum Keith Rennie, I think his name is Roy. His the, name is Roy. Yeah, his character, the girl, um, apparently the people who talked to the old man when he was young. Uh, everyone is like, oh, it's a bear. It's a grizzly. Okay. Even if you don't believe in the supernatural, the idea that this is a bear is absurd. Also, there are no grizzlies in that part of Colorado. No, there aren't. There are black bears, and black bears are more aggressive with people than grizzly bears, typically because black bears are more likely to be habituated. But even so, it does not look, sound, or behave like a bear and anyone with even a passing knowledge of bears would realize this you know what it looks sounds and behaves like a mountain lion a mountain lion nobody says that it even kind of sounds like a mountain lion the way that it picks off people and is clearly actually eating them not just killing them it's a mountain lion this definitely comes back to the idea that like the showrunners don't actually have that great of a knowledge of rural life at all. No, they don't. They don't. The moment in when they show up and she's like, oh, you're hiking in jeans? Why don't you have shorts? Uh, why do you have shorts? Excuse me? It's fall. You're wearing shorts. No gaiters. You don't appear to have any long pants options. Yeah, maybe they're wearing jeans. They're wearing cotton. That's dumb. Why are you wearing shorts? No, no. Even the people who are supposed to be experts at this are so bad. And then she judges Dean for having M&Ms as if that wasn't like the most typical backcountry snack. Hiking in biker boots, dumb. Hiking in jeans, dumb. Hiking in shorts without bringing snacks, dumber. Oh my God, I love you. (laughs) This has been um, Backcountry Wilderness uh, PSA with Marit, uh, just in case you guys 
didn't know um, anything about backcountry hiking. Um, we might end up doing a podcast just specifically on how not to be dumb in the wilderness. <laughs> Take bear spray. Yeah. Like, it, they think that they're going to run into a grizzly, which A, as you point out, doesn't make any sense because it's clearly a cougar if it's anything. And then B, there aren't any grizzlies in that area of Colorado. They're, the only place that has grizzlies in the lower 48 is Yellowstone. And they are nowhere near it. Yep. It's real dumb. It's real, real dumb. Uh, I don't know if you guys can tell that we, we care very deeply about <laughs> this particular song. It's clear that like, they just didn't know anything about this. They're just yeah. like, oh, there are grizzlies in the Colorado wilderness, sure. They did use the term backcountry. I will give them that. Apparently, nobody here has figured out what the backcountry actually is or how to be prepared to be in the backcountry, but they do know the word, so. It's like they, they figured out the vocabulary but couldn't be bothered to Google it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they should have called me. I would have told them. I would have told them. I was like 14 at the time. You still knew more. <laughs> do you feel yeah. do you feel satisfied with your rant? I do. That's I good. Do. I really enjoyed hearing it. Getting back on topic. Rondigo is really the uh one the only episode in this uh in this set of episodes we specifically looked at and one of the few episodes that deals with the actual concept of untouched wilderness despite that being something that in uh, the Western genre is it plays a huge role in contrast with civilization, and so in a lot of ways, supernatural definitely fits much better into the detective genre because the detective genre def- has this this tension between civilization and corruption of civilization, and the new frontier of the detective genre is one's own morals in the face of injustice. And that is definitely something that much more closely fits in into what Supernatural is portraying. Right. And I just want to quickly clarify for anyone who's coming into this, um, not having listened to the first part, we're not trying to debate which of these two genres Supernatural fits into. We've identified these two heroic archetypes that we think work really well Um both to describe the Winchesters and offer a, offer us interesting insights into the Winchesters as characters by the ways in which they don't fit into the archetypes. Um, so when we're talking about the Western genre versus the detective genre, we're just using them as points of analysis and comparison. We're not saying that it is one or the other. Yeah, and it clearly draws, Supernatural as a show clearly draws on tropes and um, ways of thinking about uh, stories and characters from both of these genres. It draws a lot on the Western genre in how it has these characters who are nomadic and portrayed as, um, as very moral, who come and rescue innocence, and that's basically the essence of the Western genre. And then we've also got the detective genre, which um, has characters who do the same thing as a Western hero, but their world is just a bit more complicated. And rather than purging um, civilization from, with like purging evil from civilization, the civilization itself uh, really stands as a villain in the detective genre. So this is a line from, I think it's from a Chris Ledoux song. Uh, if you don't know who Chris Ledoux is, 
you should look him up if you like country music and if you don't then don't look him up <laughs> uh but there's a line in one of his songs um, in which he describes a cowboy as a knight in leather armor, which I think also describes the Winchesters really well. Uh, and I don't want to go like too far down that rabbit hole, but I, I just really like that line in reference to the Winchesters and their fondness for leather jackets and leather boots and so on. <laughs> Yeah, and the analogy between uh, the Impala and either a cowboy's um, horse or a knight's is really explicitly drawn, especially when uh, the horsemen show up and Death is driving around in a white car. And so it's because of the whole analogy, Death rides a pale horse. So it's it's very clear that in the supernatural uh, canon that Horses and cars are intrinsically linked, and particularly old muscle cars from the 50s are very clearly an analogy to horses. And it's actually, it's interesting to me how that also links through to the detective genre. So in the article we read about the detective heroic archetype, the author goes to great length to describe how uh, motion is a quintessential aspect of the character. Um, and both in terms of the character is constantly searching and plays a very active role in the plot, um, but also the idea of having a vehicle that serves as their home in a really specific way that aligns basically perfectly with Supernatural um, and with the Western, right? Uh, and with this idea of knights errant, like this is a, a really old theme in Western literature. Um, and also in Eastern literature, um, the wuxia genre in uh, Chinese mythology is also basically the knight errant uh, or a very similar equivalent in Western, mytholo uh, Western mythology. And so you can, this concept of the like the wandering fixer of problems is something that's uh, seen throughout a lot of different cultures. Mm -hmm. And I think it ties into this idea that we were talking about in part one of heroes occupying a liminal space, right? Um, I think actually something that uh, really strikes me when I think about heroes occupying a liminal space and how the way a hero acts uh, to mete out justice or potentially even kill someone uh, as an individual rather than as a community member. This is going to sound a little silly at first, but I always think of the Disney version of Beauty and the Beast, right? Oh, it, like where the Beast is an outcast from society? Right, but so when Gaston decides to go attack the beast castle he doesn't go do that by himself or with a small group of friends or supporters right that doesn't even really seem to occur to him gaston is positioned as a villain in this but in a way he's sort of a stand-in for social norms of the time right yeah and he's a stand-in for civilization and in a lot of ways Belle isn't because she's somewhat of an outcast from the civilization just the way that the in a very similar way that the beast is right exactly 
Um, and so before Gaston can even consider going to the castle, he has to get not just community support, but community participation. The decision of who lives, who dies, who's an outcast, who isn't, what's part of society and what's unacceptable has to be this community decision in order for it to be acceptable for him to continue to exist as that sort of normative ideal person within the society, right? He can't act on his own because that would place him in this liminal space uh, that would make him potentially a hero, but potentially also an outcast. And so that's just something that I think about in this context a lot and that I think is a really interesting example uh, in comparison with something like Supernatural uh, that really focuses on those liminal edges. Yeah, and Beauty and the Beast is an interesting example of a, a somewhat unusual format for a story where the there isn't really anyone in those liminal spaces in the same way a traditional hero uh, would occupy. And in fact, it's very much an inversion of sort of the trope and story structure that Supernatural mm-hmm. uses because the heroes, uh, the protagonists of the Beauty and the Beast story are people who are completely outside and removed from society. And it sort of goes back to what we were talking about, this sort of um, idyllic pastoral uh, versus the sort of corrective uh, civilization, the corrective civilization. And Beauty and the Beast is a story that really falls into the concept of the pastoral, where the beast is very close with nature and uh, Belle is somebody who leaves society to join with nature in a, in a, in a pretty metaphorical and literal way. And then you've got the real villain of the, of the society being, or the real villain of the story being Gaston, who is a pinnacle member of the society in which, uh, which is represented by ignorant townspeople who want to destroy nature. I agree. I think, um, oh, I'm just, I'm going to like completely change the topic of conversation here, but uh, I've, I've said this before, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Um, as you know, I think that Sam Winchester is in many ways a Byronic hero. Um, you know, the, the association with Lucifer, the way he's driven by emotions and love and compassion in a way that Dean isn't. I think the sort of dark brooding thing, I think really aligns him really well with the Byronic hero that we discussed in part one. Uh, But I would be really interested to hear what you think about that. So I think it's pretty clear that Sam uh, for the most part, exhibits a lot of the traits of a Byronic hero. Um, if you're just looking at what makes a Byronic hero in a point-by-point list, he fills all, fulfills all the traits. He's handsome, which is, as we talked about, one of the like all, almost one of the prerequisites, and male, which again is what we typically see with Byronic heroes. He's very much um, a hero with his own moral code, but that moral code is almost what ends up 
leading him into being a, more of a villain character. And he's got a fundamental flaw in himself, which he struggles with, which is that desire for power and that desire for revenge and all of the darker emotions. And that's really what leads him down the path towards being evil and towards um, becoming less human as the show is, which is the terms the show clearly uses to describe him as he becomes, um, as he drinks demon blood and becomes more powerful in, um, in sort of demonic powers. He is described continuously as becoming less human and he uses the word freak frequently. I think that because of that and because fundamentally it's his own flaws that, um, that are what uh, what undermines him. And as I've, I've used this quote before, but Ruby says when he kills Lilith that I, you had the option, I gave you the options and you chose the path. Um, and so it's very clear that the show sees him as in a lot of ways, um, like independent of the monsters, like Dean and Sam are their own worst enemies. <laughs> like they, uh, like it is Sam's fundamental desire for revenge and his, belief that he isn't strong enough on his own that leads him into um, some very morally questionable behavior, which is one of the hallmarks, I think, of the Byronic hero. That being said, I feel like uh, there is an argument to be made that Dean could also fit into it, even if it's not as like obvious as a choice, um, because they both exhibit all of the characteristics of Byronic heroes and uh, but with Dean the flaws are are definitely within himself but it seems more like his circumstances at least that's the way I interpret it like even though people definitely blame him for breaking the first seal he his circumstances seem very very understandable to I think the average viewer because he was tortured for 30 years in hell that's a pretty significant burden. Whereas with Sam, it's like, oh, you want revenge for your girlfriend and you've been manipulated by a demon, which is also somewhat understandable, but a little less sympathetic. <laughs> so I think that um, Dean much more closely uh, exhibits the traits of an anti-hero, whereas Sam, I think, is very clearly a Byronic hero. But Again, we see them sort of shift along the spectrum depending on which episode it is and which monster they're dealing with. That's a good point. I think for me, like it's hard for me to think of Dean as a Byronic hero in the same way because, you know, when I think about Byronic heroes aside from the like dark brooding thing and the love aspect, which is really important, which I think Dean also lacks, the ways in which um, their emotions drive their moral decisions and drive them to do great things, but also commit great sins. I feel like Dean, aside from a handful of instances, which do have a big impact, um, his decisions are often based on pragmatism, pragmatism or his moral code um and it's it's sort of an external moral code right like we yeah, see it's the, the code that's imposed on him by his father rather than something he comes to on his own right and we see dean acting at points as sort of the arbiter of hunter ethics and norms and morality right uh so what's that guy's name who tries to kill sam 
Uh, he's a hunter. It's the episode right after Croatellan. Um, we're seeing I don't think I saw that. goes by himself to Indiana. Well, anyways, there's a hunter in that episode um, who has decided that Sam is evil and that he's going to kill Sam. And Dean shows up and rescues Sam eventually. Uh, but it seems relevant to me. So two things really struck me. First of all, Dean is rescuing Sam because Sam's his brother and he loves him. Yes. But he's also saying to the other hunter, this isn't what we do. We don't kill people. This is unacceptable and you can't do this. Um, And second, uh, once he has violated that hunter code, Dean sets him up to get arrested, right? So he hands him over to the conventional authorities. Um, And I think we also see echoes of that in Jess and Bello, where Dean is threatening Bella in much the same way that Henriksen interacts with Dean, right? Huh. Um, oh, yeah, that's an interesting parallel that I hadn't drawn before. Yeah, well, it's, it really struck me. Um, so Dean's on the phone with Bella, right? She says something about, like, like Dean and Sam are searching her hotel room. Uh, in this very police procedural kind of way. They get on the phone with her. They're talking to her about what she's done. They're explaining to her why, how she's violated the ethics of the hunter world and how this is not a, an acceptable thing to do. And she needs to turn herself into them. Um, and she's like, well, what are you going to do? Like, just track me down. And Dean says, I have absolutely nothing better to do than to track you down. Which is paralleled almost exactly by Hendrickson later in the episode, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Hendrickson says almost exactly the same thing to Dean about how he's been hunting Dean relentlessly. And so it comes up in other episodes too, but those are the two instances that really stand out to me and strike me as Dean in particular as this person who works to enforce uh, the ethics and moral values and norms of the hunter world on other members of that world um, and is totally willing to turn other hunters into the authorities, even if that's something that he would normally find totally antithetical to who he is as a person he is willing to turn other hunters over to the police if they violate those ethics and tellingly figures like ellen bobby even bella in some ways seem to agree that that is dean's position and is something that he can and should do Uh, right like bella's not saying you can't hunt me down like what gives you that right she's saying you don't have time for that Uh, it's interesting because i think that in croatone we see something very different though because we see dean um really struggling with the death of his father and really getting to slip further and further along that anti-hero track towards full villain and he's really willing to kill people if necessary except when it comes to his brother and so we see time and time again that even though he is an arbiter of 
a certain his own morality and in a lot of ways hunter morality and societal norms he is also willing to sacrifice that if it means that sam if if it comes to the fact that Sam is in danger or anything to do with Sam or later Cass is um, affected negatively by those morals. Right. That's true. Um, although I would argue Croatoan is presenting us with two different ways of being a hero, right? Rather than um, like sliding down this anti-hero track, I think Croatoan is asking us to look at whether a hero um, is someone who does what's necessary uh, or someone who values innocence above all else. The idea of do you protect society at all costs or do you protect morals and ethics at all costs? Yeah, and it's interesting because Croatoan clearly has Dean on the side of we just need to protect society at all costs. Um, which is interesting because it is definitely um, a societal issue because of the Croatoan virus being such a potentially widespread societal level uh, issue, which is different than what we see in Juice and Bella, where it, is, it isn't at a societal level, it's at the level of some individuals that Dean knows, but in that he doesn't take the pragmatic approach of killing one person to save multiple other people. He takes the approach of, well, we need to save everyone, um, even though that's potentially more dangerous in the long run. I think it's, it's interesting to me, though, in both cases, Dean is the one arguing in favor of taking away another person's agency, right? So, Well, Dean has this thing when he's a hero is it, in that he often takes over the agency of others. Like, that is sort of his modus operandi in that and he does this with Sam a lot as well, where he is constantly taking over from other people, particularly the ones that don't know about the supernatural, but even Sam, because Dean sees himself as a more competent hunter. That's interesting. Um, watching the show myself as a teenager, as an older sibling, I often identified really strongly with Dean's frustration with Sam's unwillingness to just trust him. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. And it's interesting. I, I also primarily identify with Dean and I am also an older sibling of a younger sibling. So I feel like, yeah, it's definitely that the dynamic between siblings is really strong. And I agree that like you can see Dean's frustration with Sam as his younger brother a lot. Right, right. It's interesting that you, you're talking about Dean taking away Sam's agency because I often feel like even now, like watching the show, I sometimes get flashbacks to those teenage years and I'm just like, God damn it, Sam, will you just shut up and listen? And I think you're right that at times Dean does take away Sam's agency, but I think Sam also takes away Dean's agency at points. I think it's something they're both guilty of. Yeah, um, I mean, the thing is, is that Dean is in a lot of ways Sam's parent as well as his brother, and that really comes out in the way that Sam or that Dean is really overprotective of Sam and will constantly try. Like, it's interesting because Dean wants Sam to get back into hunting and be his partner, but also he is very, very protective of Sam. It's an interesting contrast there. I want to quickly return to this idea of agency, though. That's something that really struck me in Justin Bellow in particular, and I only really thought about in terms of uh, Croatoan and Jump the Shark and other 
episodes later on. But in Justin Bellow, yes, they're working out um, the idea of the individual versus the common good. Um, is it better to sacrifice a single innocent or to risk a whole group um, in order to preserve your your morality? And that's all good and interesting uh, and seems like a necessary question to address, even though it's like the oldest question in the book and we all knew what they were going to say anyways. Um, but Nancy, the girl who would be sacrificed, says, you should sacrifice me. I want you to do it. Like she, she argues with them at length. It's not like she just says it once. Like she keeps saying, I want you to do this. I want everyone else to be safe. I am willing to sacrifice myself. Please do this. And they very clearly reject that. And after a point, yeah. they sort of stop listening to her, right? Dean just makes the decision, no, we're not doing this. And even when Sam and Ruby and other people in the group seem to be willing to entertain the notion, he's just like, stop. And then he's like, okay, I'm stopping this. All action will cease. I got to talk this over with Sam. And it's interesting that he, like, even though he takes authority a lot of the time and especially takes authority away from the from characters other than Sam, he always goes back to consult with Sam about what they're going to ultimately decide on doing. So I think this is a really stark example of him taking away agency, especially, it's interesting, he takes away agency from, from innocence and especially women a lot, but uh, he, he does go back to consult with Sam because he sort of needs consensus with Sam in order to move forward. Also, it's interesting, though, because at the end of the episode, well, not the end, but um, at a, later in the episode, even though Nancy is very insistent at the beginning uh, when she learns about the cost of the spell, she's very insistent on being willing to sacrifice herself. Mm -hmm. uh, when she's waiting around after they've decided that they're not going to sacrifice her, she's like, oh, I'm going to have so much sex after this, <laughs> which is like, okay, it's a funny line. She's like, whatever. But um it also represents the sort of the concept that she may not be able to make decisions because she doesn't fully understand all of the options. Like Dean's like, well, we can fight. And the plan he comes up with is a pretty good plan and works. And so there's a certain concept of like Dean being the one with actually having information and skills surrounding the supernatural is always in this position where he kind of has to make the decisions for other people because he's the one who has the full information. And I think that if Nancy had, I, I mean, it's hard for me to know because she's a very minor character and we don't really get to know her very well. I think that if she had known that the, the other option was to fight and that the plan stood a pretty good chance of succeeding, then she might not have been so quick to sacrifice herself. And so I think that the show really puts this burden on Dean's sh shoulders in a really interesting way where he is, uh, again, a Western genre hero where he is the only one who really has the skills to deal with the issue. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think we ultimately came to the conclusion that at times Dean and Sam are heroes and at times they are anti-heroes. Uh, do you want to, do you want to take a side for what you think they are overall in terms of the first five seasons? Oh, I think they're clearly anti-heroes. Um, I think that they, this, they, 
have their own moral code, but they're clearly not lawful good. They, and I think that, uh, I would argue, um, that Sam is, uh, is in almost all of the episodes that we see him in a Byronic hero, um, where he is continuously undermined by his own personal flaws and motivated by, uh, love and because of love revenge. Um, and I think that Dean, um, is, is seriously, a, I think Dean is an anti-hero because he is responsible for a lot of evil that happens in the world, even if it is unwittingly. And he does some very morally questionable things because they are pragmatic or because he feels like that's what he has to do. And he's still not a villain because he does want to protect innocence and he lives very closely by his own moral code, but he doesn't live by the moral code of the society in which he inhabits. He, he, he exists in a subculture that has its own morality, and he, uh, he follows that morality very closely, but he doesn't uh, follow the morality of the culture as a whole. For me, I would sort of fall on the other side. Um, I would say, for me, the Winchesters as a set are heroes rather than anti-heroes ultimately throughout the series although at points they definitely do inhabit the roles of anti-heroes um i would argue that they embody a set of american ideals in a pretty particular way um and even though they struggle with those ideals at points um that doesn't mean that they're they're not heroes right like just because they have some pretty major character flaws. Yeah, uh, some pretty major character flaws. Doesn't mean that they're not ultimately heroes rather than anti-heroes. Um, I would say individually, I can see how we, you see them as anti-heroes. But I think taken as a team, I view them as, as heroes who embody a particular set of values um, and, and a rejection of the idea of lawful good in favor of um, a chaotic good ideal uh, along the lines of culture heroes such as Robin Hood, William Tell, so on and so forth. Go team free will. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's also interesting because it reminded me that we haven't actually talked about Castiel um, with regards to whether he's a hero or an anti-hero and I think that mm-hmm. it's interesting because he very clearly in the first five seasons goes between being a hero and a villain but never actually rests in that anti-hero state because he's so lawful good and uh he also veers into lawful evil because like mm-hmm. lawful is like the defining characteristic of his character for the uh, the only two seasons of this section of the show that we're looking at that he's in. And so it's interesting that he definitely does play the villain to the Winchesters when he is trying to carry out the will of heaven and stop them from uh, trying to fight their destiny and everything like that. But for the most part, he is uh, probably the most cut and dry hero of uh, this part of the show. Really? See, I would disagree. For me, Supernatural's rejection of lawful ideology is so strong that I don't think Supernatural can portray a lawful anything character as an uncomplicated hero. I think 
if someone is on the lawful side of the alignment chart, they're always going to be at least an anti-hero in Supernatural. How interesting. But I feel like Castiel is just so, like, he's so clearly moral. And not only the, like, morality of, like, Christianity, but also the morality of just, like, common sense morality, I'd almost say. Like, he very clearly um, has a very strict moral code that he follows very, very closely and doesn't allow any of his own personal, well, I guess eventually he does allow his own personal feelings to to interfere with that morality. But, and he, his story, his arc is really one of going from an authoritarian to somebody who rejects authoritarianism. Um, so he is a very interesting arc in the context of the show, but I still sort of see him as a villain turned hero. He's a, he's almost like a Zuko-esque character from Air, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender where he starts off being so thoroughly entrenched in a the evil camp and then switches sides because he realizes that his morality doesn't fall in line with the authoritarianism that he comes from. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily see him as an anti-hero. See, so I would agree that we see him go on this journey uh, from villain to a more heroic figure. Um, but I would argue that that journey is his gradual rejection of, like you said, authoritarianism, but more generally of the idea of lawful morality, of the idea that um, like lawful good or lawful neutral is better than chaotic good or neutral good. Not to get too bogged down in, you know, D&D character alignment charts, <laughs> Which is not actually a, a, I mean, it's sort of helpful as a shorthand, but not, it's not actually an accepted, like, way of classifying people. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but, yeah, so I would argue that, to me, in order to become heroic, Castiel has to reject the idea that morality received from authority is always more correct than your own personal conscience and code of ethics. And we see him gradually moving away from authoritarianism. So he starts by gradually starting to see the flaws in Heaven's authority. And then we see him, I would argue, he then takes on the Winchester's morality as his own and looks to not, no, not Sam, not really Sam, but Dean and Bobby as sources of morality. And eventually, slowly, gradually throughout the show, we see him eventually reach a point where he can uh, sort of be the captain of his own destiny and make his own moral choices. And I think uh, that all, like that slow journey of him rejecting that authority shows us how he moves from villain to ally to anti-hero. I guess he does end up a hero by the very end but i don't like i don't see him occupying 
the role of a hero as a champion of the set of ideals and ethics and norms and cultural values and ideologies and so on and so forth that the show is espousing in the same way that Dean and Sam do. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Uh, I think we should probably uh, leave it there because I feel like if we start talking about Castiel as a hero, we're never going to (laughs) stop. Yes. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, I had really great time talking with Ray about heroes, anti-heroes, and the idea of independence and authoritarianism in Supernatural and how all of those things are connected. Yeah, and I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us debate um, hero versus anti-hero and the Western genre versus the detective genre and the way that Supernatural fits into those tropes and structures. And um, if you guys have any questions or thoughts about uh, what you heard on the podcast, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Um, also, feel free, if uh, you liked what you heard, to rate and review us on iTunes. If you didn't like what you heard, please email us instead of rating us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we hope that you guys uh, will join us again for our next episode. Our next episode is going to be taking a look at our favorite episodes of Supernatural. Uh, so each of us is going to bring three episodes to the table. We're not going to know what the other one's episodes are in advance. Um, And we're going to talk about what our favorite episodes are or which episodes we perceive as the best, what we mean by best or favorite, and discuss how and why those episodes are important to us. Yeah, it's purely a guilty pleasures episode, y'all. So uh, look forward to that. And wait, are we allowed to choose episodes from outside of the first five seasons? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Because uh, I think I think we both might end up with uh, some overlaps then in that case. <laughs> oh, man. I have, I have it narrowed down to four, so... Oh my god, I, I haven't even thought about it yet, and I've been re-watching a lot of the fifth season, which is one of my favorite seasons, and I'm just like, oh, it's so hard to choose. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The first two were really easy for me. The third... So many options. So many options. Um, yeah. But as Sam Winchester said in season one, episode two, Crow... No, not Croato and Wendigo. Uh, we will see you all there and meet you further on down the road but for the meantime I'm driving (laughs) okay we're gonna say that at the end of every episode now dreams of the past podcast is written researched and produced by Ray and Mish you can reach them on twitter at dreamspastpod tumblr at dreamsofthepastpodcast.tumblr.com and email at dreamsofthepastpodcast at gmail.com Dreams of the Past Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. Please rate and review us. Thanks to Benjamin Geyer and Lynn Music for our theme song Lonesome Ranger. That episode, Wendigo, is also where the Winchesters get their catchphrase, which is the saving people hunting ours.
saving people hunting things family business. So uh, <laughs> I am very pleased that we found our catchphrase in the same episode. <laughs> I, me too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 